Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Tony Morita, pastor at church in Raleigh, North Carolina, and it is a great joy to be with you. I was uh, celebrating Thanksgiving with my family who live in Lexington, Kentucky, and um, my friend Joel Reagans, uh, go Big Blue. Uh, my friend Joel Reagans, whom some of you know here, uh, he and I have been friends for, uh, I don't know, over 12 years now. I've uh, made 12, 13 trips to Ukraine uh, teaching uh, for Joel uh, and had a great pl uh, pleasure last night of uh, having dinner with he and Mary Ellen and uh, Larry and Elizabeth, and it's a great joy to be with you uh, this morning. I have uh, four of my kids. I already sent one back home, but I have five children. Uh, we adopted four children from Ukraine uh, 10 years ago uh, and an Ethiopian son uh, nine years ago, and so we now have five teenagers, ages 14 to 18. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I probably shouldn't even preach. We should just pray, right? Uh, you, 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 know, you know how to pray for me uh, and, and our family. But it is a great delight to be with you. I've heard of this church for many years now. Uh, and uh, it's my first time to be here. Um, and um, again, just a great honor. Let's open the scriptures together to Romans chapter 8. I'd like to preach the whole book of Romans today. Uh, Romans 8. Uh, we're going to uh, confine our attention to verses 31 to 39. But I do want to give you a bit of a, a survey of the book of Romans. That we're going to sink down into 31 to 39. If you're uh, new to the Bible, uh, just uh, make your way to the New Testament. I think there's some Bibles in the pew rack there. Uh, pull it up on your phone, perhaps. If you're uh, not a Christian and you're uh, perhaps just exploring the faith, uh, very delighted that you're with us today uh, and pray that the Lord would speak to you, that you would come on in to our study uh, of the book of Romans. Uh, and maybe, maybe the Lord has you here uh, for a particular reason, uh, that you may uh, join us and be able to call one another brother and sister. You would trust in Christ. That's my prayer. Let's, pr let's uh, read the scriptures together. And we're going to pray. Romans 8, verses 31 to 39, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I always say to my students, if you can't preach a good sermon, at least read a great text. And I've just read a great text, my friends. So let's pray together and ask for the Lord to speak, us, speak to us from it. Father, what we know not, please teach us. What we have not, please give us. And what we are not, please make us. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. Our church typically goes through books of the Bible on Sunday mornings, and a couple of years ago we went through the book of Romans. It didn't take us as long as it's taken many of my heroes. We managed to get through the book of Romans in just nine months. We didn't take, as I call it, the Hotel California approach, where you check in but never leave. Um, but you never really get finished with Romans, do you? Uh, if you are new to the Bible, this is one of the great majestic books in the New Testament, 
where Paul unfolds for us the glorious gospel. And throughout church history, there are many very influential figures that trace their conversion to the book of Romans, like Martin Luther, who was this German monk who wanted to be right with God and tried everything to be right with God on his own, only to discover that we, we cannot earn righteousness. Righteousness is received by faith. As Luther understood Romans 1.17, he said it was though the gateway to paradise opened to him as he trusted in Christ and Christ alone to be his righteousness. Soon after that, Luther would go on to translate the Bible into German. Luther would write commentaries. Those are comments about verses in the Bible. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Romans. And the great uh, figure John Wesley was listening to someone read Luther's commentary out loud. And as someone was reading the introduction of Luther's commentary, Wesley said, my heart was warmed and I trusted in Christ. That's a pretty good book, by the way, if someone gets converted by your introduction uh, to your book. Well before these guys was St. Augustine, the North African church father, who was 32 years old, was not a Christian. Augustine died around 430 AD. His mother prayed for him to be a Christian for years. And Augustine was uh, very immoral. He had multiple mistresses and, and was just living it up in the indulgence of his flesh. And he said he heard a song one time uh, with some kids singing. And the song was something like, take up and read, take up and read. And so he goes outside and he, he finds a Bible and he said, I determined that the first passage I open to is going to be God's word for me. And so, by the way, I don't really recommend that. Uh, fortunately, he didn't open to Judas hung himself. But <laughs> he, he opened it up to Romans 13, which talks about taking off the, the works of darkness, putting on the works of light. Augustine traces his conversion to that particular period. Well, I don't know, my friends, if, if you were converted through the book of Romans. Perhaps someone walked you through what we often call the Roman road, which articulates for us the good news of the gospel, or if you were converted through some other passage of Scripture. But what, whatever the case, Romans 1.16 really is true. The gospel really is the power of God unto salvation. I just want to remind you today, my friends, that the gospel still works. The gospel works. As my British friend Steve Timmons says, the gospel works. The gospel works. And if we're going to do anything in this world for Christ, we need to have an unshakable confidence in the gospel. That it really is the power of God unto salvation. Paul has been unpacking that in these eight chapters of Romans, and now he hits some of these, these themes which are so important for us in a bit of a summary in the passage that we just read. And I'd like to walk you through it uh, this morning and then offer some applications for our lives. Now, in so doing, if you're looking at a text, you'll see there that Paul has essentially four questions, four, you might call them who questions. I used to live in New Orleans for about eight years, and, and I have an affinity for the New Orleans Saints and the saints have a cheer. Maybe you've heard it called a who dat. Um, who dat? It's a very deep cheer. Uh, who dat say going to beat them saints? Normally it's everybody. This year they're actually having a really good year. Um, but I like to think of Romans 8 as Paul's who dat section. He, he's essentially asking, who dat say going to beat them saints? And you notice the question there in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? And the answer, by the way, to each question is Nobody. Right? Verse 33, the next who question is, who shall bring any charge against us? Nobody. Verse 34, who is to condemn us? Nobody. Verse 35, who shall separate us? 
Who would I say going to be them saints? What Paul is doing in this passage, my friends, is giving us assurance. We, if we are in Christ Jesus, we are safe. We are secure. And we should rejoice today. And we should want to take this good news to the world. So let's think about these four questions for a moment. The first question, who can be against us? Now you notice there's a question that actually is prior to that question. In verse 31 where Paul says, what shall we say to these things? Now if you're writing in the Bible, you might just circle these things. What does, what does Paul mean by these things? I don't think Paul has in mind simply the things in Romans chapter 8. I think what Paul has in mind is everything he said up to this point in Romans. He, after he finishes the section we're looking at this morning, he jumps into a new section in Romans 9 through 11 as he unfolds for us uh, God's purposes for the Gentile and the Jew. Chapter 12, he talks about the church, he talks about community life, using our spiritual gifts, serving each other. Chapter 13, he talks about how we should relate to the government. Chapter 14, he talks about how Gentiles and Jews can get along together with their cultural differences and be united. Chapter 15, he talks about his mission to Spain. But the first eight chapters is largely about our individual salvation, how we come to faith in Jesus. So what do we say to these things? Well, what has Paul said in Romans 1 to 8? Well, in short, Paul says in Romans 1, 2, and 3, we are sinful and guilty before God. We have no hope. Everybody's guilty. He says, in fact, you're worse than you've ever dreamed. But then in Romans 3.21, he says, God has intervened. And you are loved than you, more than you've dared to hope. God has put forward Christ in our place. He has poured out his punishment on him. And by faith in Jesus, we can be declared righteous before God. We are positionally righteous. We're not practically righteous. We, we still have sin in our lives. We know this. But positionally, we're righteous. We're justified. We are right before God. When he sees us, he sees the blood of Christ. That's chapter 3 and 4. We're justified before God. He impacts that a little bit more in chapter 5 and also adds that we are reconciled to God. In our sin, we're alienated from God. But Jesus reconciles us to God. Chapter 6 and 7, we are indwelt by the Spirit of God. And now we are growing in Christ's likeness by the Spirit. Chapter 8, he begins by saying, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He unpacks for us the work of the Spirit in our lives. He tells us in Romans 8, 14 and following that we have been adopted by God. Tells us in 8, 26 that the Spirit is, in, is interceding for us that God's working all things together for our good. Now Paul gets to this question in verse 31. What do we say to these things? <laughs> How do you summarize all of that? That would be Paul's test question. How do you summarize Romans chapters 1 to 8? And I think Paul gives us the answer, his answer, in the form of a question. It is simply this. God is for us. What is the good news of Romans 1 to 8, my friends? It's that Almighty God is not opposed to us. He's for us. He's for us. It's hard to imagine anything better than that today, is there? He's for us. You know, I've been doing youth camps for many years, and sometimes the kids will come up at the end of the camp and they'll say, hey, pastor, will you sign my shirt? Will you sign my notebook or whatever? And will you sign a verse? Now, what verse do you sign when someone asks you to do that? 
You know, sometimes when I'm feeling a bit rascally, I do Exodus 23, 19. Don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. I'll just write that verse down and say, there you go, little Johnny. Uh, go, go and do likewise. But, but when I'm feeling really holy, I write Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, my friends, who can be against us? Well, the question is this, how do we know that? How do we know this is not just happy God talk? How do we know that's really true? I mean, it sounds really good, and we really want it to be true. Is there a way you can actually know that? That God really is for you? And the answer, my friends, is yes, and it's found in verse 32. 32 comes after 31. And what Paul says in 32 is something has happened in space, time, and history. A real event has happened that has proven once and for all that God is for us. And what is that event? The cross. The cross is God's ongoing proof that we have that he is for us. Something has already happened to prove it. Here's how Paul says it. He who did not spare his own son. You hear the language of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham's son was spared, but the father's son was not spared. He did not spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. On behalf of us, instead of us, Christ died. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? This is how we know that God is for us. This is how we know this is true and not just some airy-fairy promise floating in the sky. The cross assures us today that God is for us. Now, 32 is a glorious verse in itself. We could preach a whole sermon on each verse here. But notice what Paul says in 32. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He who did not spare his own son, that's the greater, nothing greater than that, but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him give us the lesser all things? In other words, if God is going to do the big thing, we're going to be all right. He's got us. If God is going to give Jesus Christ for you, you can relax. He's going to graciously give us all things. You see, he has made the big purchase. He has done the big thing. A lot of people trust in Christ for their salvation, but they don't use the cross in day-to-day -day life. They don't look back at the cross regularly to be assured that God is for them. It's, it's, it's a poor way to live, isn't it? But use the cross. The cross is showing us every day of our lives that God is for us, that he will graciously give us all things. He's done the big thing. He's going to do the little thing. If I take my kids to Disney World and spend you know, a fortune so we can stand in the heat and be miserable, that's how I feel about it. Uh, we spend $3,000 to fly down there, and we get tickets to see Mickey and ride these rides and spend money on hotels and food. Let's say we're all driving to the theme park, and I see a sign that says parking $15. If I look over to my bride and I say, babe, I'm not doing it. I'm drawing the line right here. There's free parking five miles back. <laughs> we're we're, we're going to walk. What's she going to say to me? Not good things, right? Not church words. Uh, <laughs> She's going to say bowling alley words. Yeah. She's going to say, no, we, we paid $4,000 to get to this point. We're going to pay $15 to park, pal. Right? My friends, God has already made the big purchase. He's going to pay for your parking. We're going to be all right. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? 
Now, all things, we've got to be clear here, is not everything you've ever wanted. In fact, he's going to go on to say that you actually may suffer a lot in this life. All things necessary to get you to your final destination. All things, is connected to Romans 8, 28. He's working all things together for our good. In other words, God doesn't redeem us to leave us. He doesn't just redeem us, and now we're on our own. He redeems us to conform us. He's got his hands on us. How will he not with him graciously give us all things? So, question number one, who can be against us? Answer, nobody. How do we know this? The cross. Live with that assurance, my friends. Live with that assurance. Second question, who will bring any charge against us? Verse 33. Now, of course, people will bring charges against us. Satan himself will accuse us. Sometimes our own hearts will try to condemn us. But notice what Paul says. It is God who justifies us. This is Paul's way of saying, you can't go higher than God. If God has justified you, that is, you've put faith in Jesus, he's declared you to be righteous in him, and God has made that verdict, then no one can usurp his authority. No one is higher than God. It's God who justifies. So live with that assurance. Live with that confirmation. You know, I fly a good bit, and you can always tell the difference in a, in a confirmed passenger and a standby passenger. I don't know if you've ever experienced this or not, but a standby passenger doesn't know if he or she is getting on the plane. They see their name on the little list, and they're hoping their name will trickle up the list. And sometimes they're nervous, they're pacing, they're calling their, their spouse or their friend and saying, I don't know if I'm going to get on the flight or not. I don't have a confirmed ticket. But if you've got a confirmed ticket, you can relax. You're getting on the plane. And what Romans 8 is showing us, <clears throat> what verse 33 is showing us, is that, my friends, if you're in Christ, you have a confirmed ticket. You have a confirmed ticket. Verse 33 is like verse 32 when he says, who is to condemn? Again, people will try to condemn us. Satan will try to condemn us. But ultimately, they cannot prevail because Christ Jesus, he says, has died. Christ the one who could condemn us, was condemned on behalf of us. He wasn't guilty, but he took our place. Who is to condemn? It's not Jesus. He died more than that who was raised. Paul says in Romans 4, 25, that he was raised for our justification. He was raised showing us that the Father accepted his sacrifice. He was raised to assure us of our resurrection. You and I will be raised, my friends, bodily. We will have a glorified body. Praise the Lord. I told the church a couple weeks ago, when, uh, in the new heaven and new earth, I'm going to have some bangs. I can't wait for that new body. I'm going to be in the band, and I'm, I'm throwing the bangs back. Like We're going to be raised. D.A. Carson says it well when he says, I'm not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> whatever we're suffering from, that'll do the trick, won't it? What do you need today? I need a good resurrection. That's what I need. Well, that's what the gospel's teaching us. Oh, we suffer in this life. We have grief in this life. We're wounded in this life. We wound other people in this life. But one day he will make all sad things untrue, right? He will wipe every tear from our eye. We will be raised. How do we know this? Because Jesus Christ is our forerunner. He was raised for us. And now notice what Paul says. What's Jesus doing? 
He's interceding for us. What a thought. Present tense, right now, Jesus Christ interceding for you. You are the subject of his intercessory prayers. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor who died when he was 29 but made a a lasting impact on the world, commenting on this verse, says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. But distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. Who is to condemn us? Not Christ. The one who could condemn us, died for us, rose for us, and right now is interceding for us. My friends, this is the foundation of Christian joy. And I want to tell you that I think this is what the whole world wants. They want freedom. They want guilt off of them. And they go everywhere trying to get it off of them. You travel the world and you see world religions trying to do self-atonement trying to pay God back. My wife and I went to Rome a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago, rather, and we visited a church called the Church of the Holy Steps. Martin Luther actually visited that church as well. And at the Church of the Holy Steps, there are, I think, 22 steps or something like that. They say these steps were brought from Jerusalem, the steps Christ went up during his passion. And it's all written down outside that if you pray up these steps on a certain day of the year, certain days of the year, you can have, it said, total atonement. And it was so sad, as as my wife and I watched these people praying up these steps. Now, you may not hold that view. You may know people who don't hold that view, but they still have their own steps. They're still trying to earn their way to salvation. Still trying to merit grace. Still trying to earn favor. And the good news of the gospel is Jesus already went up the steps for us. He said on the cross, it is finished. You simply trust in him. And if you're not a Christian, we want you to hear the good news today. It's not about what you do, it's about what he has done. He died, he rose, he's at the Father's right hand, he's interceding for us, he is our only hope. And if you place your faith in him, you can have this assurance. And this is why we sing songs to Jesus, isn't it? And not about ourselves. This is why Peter, they couldn't wake him up in jail. He had such peace. And then in Acts 16, Paul's in prison, but he's not sleeping. He's singing. He's in jail. That's what the gospel does. It can let you sleep. And it can let you sing. People may enchain you. They may enslave you like Paul and Peter. But your heart is free. It's what the whole world wants. Question four, who shall separate us? Now, you notice something very curious about this. Paul spends double the time on this answer (laughs) than the previous questions. Now, if you're like me, and you, you like conciseness, and you really like efficiency, why doesn't Paul say, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nobody. Chapter nine. Like, is Paul trying to make a word count in Romans? <laughs> no. I think, I, I think this is why Paul spends so much time answering this question the way he does. It's because he doesn't just want you to have the right answers. He wants you to have the right affections. Because it is very possible to know nothing can separate you from the love of Christ and still be a very cold individual. 
to not be moved by it. Paul is not just a brain on a stick. He knows that we are people with affections, with emotions, with, with, with passions. And he wants to stir our affections. And so what he does is he, he puts the rhetorical pedal to the homiletical metal. Whipping us into this sense of awe over the love of Christ. And that in itself, my friends, is very important for us to realize. Because there are a lot of people out there who want to change people's behavior without addressing their affections. And your behavior will not change until your affections change. If you love Jesus, though, deeply, it will change your behavior dramatically. Now, you can harp on behavior all you want, but it won't have a long-term impact. If you're a parent, you know how this works. See it in pastoring all the time. You give people law after law. They may follow it for a bit. But you want real lasting change? It has to come from the inside out. When affections change, everything changes. So let's take it. You got a teenage son. Let's just call him James. He's 16 years old. And you say to James, hey, James, pal, why don't you take a shower? I really think it would do you well. He's not interested. Hey, James, have you ever considered deodorant? It's a modern invention. I think you'd really, really benefit from it. No. Hey, James, how about cologne, man? Like a little dab will do you. Just, you know, love your neighbor and a little cologne. Not interested? Hey, James, why don't you wash my car? You have any interest in washing my car? Oh, no, no. Hey, James, why don't you get a job? I think you need a job. Want to get a job? No. James doesn't want to do any of those things until he gets a girlfriend. All of a sudden now, guess who wants to take a shower? Guess who's using deodorant? Guess who has so much cologne on that you can't light anything flammable near his bedroom? <laughs> he wants to wash the car. He wants to get a job. Why? He got a new love. And do you see that, my friend? Until you really love Jesus, your behavior won't change. But when you really do love Jesus, you don't have to tell people, hey, you need to give more money. You need to stop looking at that. You need to invest your time this way. We live out of our hearts. That's possible to know the right answers, but not have the right affections. So Paul wants us to have these affections because this is how change works. So he, he tries to whip us into this sense of worship as he gives us some possible separators. When he says, how about tribulation? Can that separate you from the love of Christ? You might feel like it when we're in trouble because we often base our assurance of God's love on our circumstances, don't we? Well, you can't. Notice that verse, you can't. Tribulation has not separated you from his love, nor distress. You're in distress. Who's not in distress? Or persecution, if someone is opposing you, attacking you for your faith. Or famine or nakedness, if you struggle to have the basic necessities of life. That, hasn't, that does not mean you're separated from his love. Or even danger and sword. He then quotes a psalm to basically say, Suffering is normal for God's people. And then he answers the question in verse 37. Who shall separate us? Can any of these things separate us? And Paul says, no. And I love his phrase again, in all these things. Notice God doesn't always take us out of these things, does he? You may actually stay in tribulation. You may be in distress. You may face persecution. You may struggle with daily necessities. 
None of those things mean you're separated from his love. Actually, the contrary is true. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Even though we're in these things, we can not only get through these things, but God will actually use these things for our good and his glory, more than a conqueror. So don't base your assurance of God's love on your, on your status, on your, on your income, on your comforts. We base it in the gospel. We base it in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's ongoing proof that nothing will ever separate us from his love. And my friends, you can, you can take the gospel to hard places when you believe that. You can do the hard thing. You can witness to your coworkers and your neighbors. You can drop those Christmas boxes off with confidence. Knowing whatever the reaction is going to be from people, you're in the presence of his love. Verse 38, he says, I'm sure that nothing in this realm, death or life, or in the spiritual realm, angels or demons, or present things or things to come, in nothing in history, nothing that has happened or will happen to us, nor powers, that is demonic powers, nor anything that we could think of, height or depth or anything in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the spirit of thanksgiving, I can't think of anything more, nothing for which we should give God thanks more than the gospel today. Paul has just unpacked it beautifully for us. Four concluding thoughts real quick, my friends, and I do mean quick. First of all, allow these truths to lead you to worship today. Again, I think that's what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to worship for who God is and what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Secondly, allow these truths to lift you from discouragement. We get, we get very discouraged in this life, don't we? And where do we go in our despair? Where do we go in our, our sense of despondency? We go back to the gospel, reminding ourselves that God is for us, reminding ourselves that nothing can condemn us, reminding ourselves that nothing can separate us, reminding ourselves, my friends, today that the tomb is empty and the throne is occupied. And because of that, we get through this life. In light of that hope, thirdly, Allow these truths to unite you in community. You know, there's great diversity in Paul's audience in, in Rome. And Paul wants to unite these Jews, these Gentiles. And the way Paul goes about unite, uniting diverse people is by showing them their commonality in the gospel. Even the text we just read, it's easy as a Western individual to read this as an individual alone. But Paul doesn't even write Romans 8, 31 to 39 in an individual sense, does he? He doesn't say, if God is for me, who can be against me? Though that's true. If God is for us. Verse 32, he gave him up for us all. You see, because when you become a Christian, you get a new family. You get a new community. And it's the gospel that shapes this community. And finally, number four, Allow these truths to fuel your mission. That's what it does for Paul. You see, the gospel is the great engine for mission. He gets to chapter 15, and you get to chapter 15, and it's, it's like, oh, this is a missionary support letter. Paul's asking for these Christians to support his mission to Spain. And you're kind of like, Paul, you waited a long time, pal, to save that for the, you know, to the last part of the book. Why? Here's this old man. 
Most scholars believe by the, by the time Paul wrote Romans 15, he's 60 years old. He's 60 years old and he wants to take the gospel to an unreached people group. He wants to plant a church in Spain. And you say, why, Paul? Why not just go to Florida, man? Just have a fruity drink and put your feet up. You know why Paul wants to take the gospel to the whole world is because he's got a gospel as big as Romans. And when you have a gospel as big as Romans, you want to take it to the whole world. The reason many people don't really give a rip about the nations is they don't have a gospel worth preaching. And until you get a great vision of the gospel, you will never have a great vision of mission. What makes a 60-year-old want to go to Spain and plant a church? God is for us. Nothing can separate us. I pray that you would be gripped afresh today by the gospel, that your affections would be stirred to worship the Lord Jesus. If you're not a Christian, we don't point you to ourselves. We don't preach to you out of any position of superiority. I'm a beggar telling other beggars where to find the bread. We want to point you to Jesus Christ, our all-sufficient prophet, priest, and king. He's come to save sinners just like us. And our prayer is that you would trust him today.